All right. Um, in the last number of years, as I've had the privilege to serve here at Central, I, I've been really intentional about a couple of things. I don't know if you've caught it or not. One of those things is I've been intentional about ensuring that we build in this church a theology of suffering. Have you noticed that? A theology of suffering. And that hasn't actually been hard to do because we just preach through books of the Bible a few verses at a time and we see suffering in the scriptures over and over and over again. And so we talk about it. And the reason we do that is because inevitably suffering will come. I don't know in exactly which way, shape, or form that will be in your life, but I can guarantee you this. If you live long enough, you will suffer. You will go through hardship. And we want to build in the kind of faith here at Central, in the disciples of Jesus here, that when hard things come, you don't bolt from Jesus, um, but, that, but that you actually cling to Jesus, turn towards Jesus. And so, well, I've, I've wanted to show you over and over again that the scriptures don't teach us that we're exempt from suffering. That's not the promise, but that the promises of God are so great for you, follower of Jesus, that it's worth clinging to him no matter what. Another thing I've been trying to be really intentional about uh, building in is a, a theology, a missiology, a theology of mission living on mission. Essentially, it's this. We cease to have the right to exist as a church if we are not about the mission of Jesus. Jesus established his church and Jesus builds his church and the purpose for is that, that, that the gospel would go forward with power. And so we exist to grow as disciples and to make disciples of Jesus. And so both of these really intersects here in a letter we're looking at this morning that Jesus spoke to, that John wrote down and sent to the church in Philadelphia. Not Philly, not, you know, I, I thought about coming up on the stage to like uh, Fresh Prince music and stuff like that, but decided against it. We're too intergenerational for that. Uh, and so, uh, so I had to make that call, difficult call. Uh, but, but what Jesus said to this first century church in Philadelphia would have been music to their ears. I, I want to tell you a little bit about this church. They were small. They were poor. They were persecuted. They had little power. But despite all that, they were faithful. Jesus has no words of correction for them. Nothing happening in the church that they were to turn from and repent of. There's only two churches out of the seven letters we're looking at in Revelation 2 and 3 where Jesus only has commendation and no condemnation. And the two churches, I find this fascinating, the two churches that Jesus only commends and doesn't correct and call to repent are poor and persecuted and they're faithful in their orthodoxy, belief, and orthopraxy, living out of those beliefs. Those are the common denominators for the two churches that Jesus only commends. What do we do with that? I actually see um, that in Jesus' eyes, small, poor, and persecuted aren't the worst things. In Jesus' eyes, small, poor, and persecuted aren't the worst things. But in our context and from our perspective... Big, impressive, rich, and free, right? 
Those are like ultimate things. Now, I'm not saying that rich is inherently bad or poverty is inherently good. I'm not going there. But there is this counterintuitive pattern in these churches that I'm also observing, not just in Revelation 2 and 3, but in the global church today. And that's this. It's the church in Iran. It's the church in Afghanistan. It's the church in Nepal. It's the church in India. And it's the church in China. All difficult places to be a Christian and in many ways poor and powerless. But Christianity at this moment in those places is advancing faster than anywhere else in the world. And so there's this letter to the church in Philly. Let's just call it the church in Philly from now on. Where Jesus is encouraging them while all of those dynamics are happening. And I think of our brothers and sisters across the world I think, man, this this so applies to them. And I also think, okay, and what can we learn from it in our context? So let me read the text to you. The the first century church in Philly, man, everything Jesus says about himself and the promises he makes to them would have just meant the world to them. So I want you to listen closely and then we'll spend our time unpacking it this morning. We're in Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. It'll be on the screen for you. Feel free to follow along in your Bible or your Bible app. Here are the words. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's how we'll, we'll uh, map this out for ourselves this morning. First, we will look at the fact that Jesus holds the key to the kingdom. We saw that in the text as I read it. Second, that Jesus has opened a door of salvation and opportunity. And then third, those who overcome will be pillars in the presence of Jesus. Before we get there, I just want to unpack the very first things Jesus says about himself. He says, these are the words of the Holy One, the True One. So the Philadelphian church were using these words for Jesus because these are words Jesus uses of himself right here, in fact. They would have called Jesus the Holy One and the True One. He is holy. He is righteous. He is perfect. He's pure. He is true. He is trustworthy. He is good. Well, at the same time, these words would have been used by the Jews in Philadelphia for their God, for God, for Yahweh God. 
And the leaders of the synagogue in Philadelphia at this time actually banished the Christians from the synagogue. They cast them out. They would not let them in. They closed the door of the synagogue on them because in their minds, these weren't being faithful. They weren't being faithful. But here's what Jesus says in response in verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I've loved you. So while this, the, um, the leaders of the synagogue were ethnically Jewish, what Jesus is actually saying here is they were no longer the true people of God. Um, to make it more clear what I'm trying to say, Paul makes the same reference in Romans chapter 2. Listen closely. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. With Jesus, it's always a heart issue. It's always about the heart. And so it's one thing to be culturally a Christian. We saw this in the church in Sardis last week. It's one thing to be culturally a Christian and really a Christian. And it's one thing to be the people of God, culturally speaking, and really truly be the people of God. And so Jesus says to the Philadelphian Christians, you have leaders in the Jewish synagogue telling you that your faith is blasphemous and banishing you from the synagogue. Jesus responds by saying, they will learn that I've loved you and in fact, one day they will bow before me and you. Just think how galvanizing that would be for this little insignificant church getting tossed around by those more powerful. And he goes on to not only say the words of the Holy One, the true one, he goes on to say, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. What does this mean? What's the key of David? Well, I really think it's an allusion to Isaiah chapter 22 where there's this man named Eliakim who is given the keys as the steward of God's, uh, steward of the keys of David. Now a steward would have held the keys of, to all the valuables of the person right, in charge. They would be their steward. They would hold on to those. But really, because it's the key of David, really this is a reference to the city of David and ultimately the eternal city and the kingdom of God. So the key of David is shorthand for the kingdom of God and all the riches of God. And then there's Jesus then saying, I hold the key of David. In other words, Jesus is the new Eliakim, the, the holder of the keys to the kingdom. And when he opens the door, no one shuts it. See, see through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he now holds the key and has opened the door to life in God everlasting. Through Jesus is entrance into the kingdom. Jesus holds the keys. Jesus holds the key to heaven, the kingdom, and eternal life. For this little church of little power and significance, many of them Jewish who had the door of the synagogue shut in their faces are hearing from Jesus, I hold the key to the greatest synagogue, the only one that truly matters, the heavenly city, and I hold the door open for you, and nobody can shut it. Nobody. I think I've, I've stood up here many times. And I've talked about the fact that Christians are, have been persecuted in history and in many places in the world today, Christians are persecuted, but not us. And, and I, I want to do a little bit of a self-critique this morning. I don't think that that's completely true. We might be experiencing, some of us might be experiencing maybe what we could call maybe a soft persecution, but there is persecution in the church today in our 
context. And I think that the, the temperature on that is only rising. Some of you suffer for your faith, don't you? You've experienced exclusion on account of Jesus. Maybe it's cost you in your family. Maybe it's cost you friendships. Maybe it's cost you in your work. I know a pastor in Toronto who says like more than half of his congregation say that if their co-work, if their bosses knew that they were Christians, it would cost them a promotion. More than half in Toronto. See, many of you, I, I really do believe, you feel like, man, to follow Jesus, I follow Jesus, I love Jesus, but there are these times, right, where you're feeling like, man, I miss out on a number of things in order to follow Jesus. And sometimes I lament that. I want you to hear the promises of Jesus. Jesus promises you so much more than what you're missing out on. The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, he says to you, I have opened the only door that really matters for you, and no one can shut you out of it. You will miss out on some things, but not on me. See, not everyone, though, in this room is a suffering Christian. And not everyone in this room, in fact, is a Christian. And, I, and so I want you to see Jesus' words here, too. He's making a very bold claim about himself here. He's saying that he holds the key of David, the key to the kingdom of God, the key to the eternal city, new heaven and new earth, heaven. He holds the key. Jesus says that he holds the key and he opens and shuts the door. Do you know Jesus? See, I really think that this, this, these words here that start our text this morning can either bring great comfort or they can really confront. Which is it for you? Do these words bring comfort to you that Jesus holds the key of David? Or does it confront you in your idea about God? Do you know Jesus? Have you embraced Jesus? He's making a bold claim about himself. Do you believe it to be true? But let's move on. Jesus has not only... Um, holds the key of David, the key, he also opened a door of salvation and opportunity. Look at verse 8, I know your works, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one's able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now there are two interpretations of what this open door is. Like what is it? What is the open door? Well, I think they're actually, both interpretations are true, and I also think that both are in mind here for Jesus. So let me explain them. The first, and I mentioned it already, is the door to the kingdom, the door of salvation. Jesus says, I have opened a door before you, an open door which no one's able to shut, the door of salvation. You've been rejected in your city. I do not reject you. I embrace you. The door is open. You are mine, and everyone will know that I've loved you. This little church had been shut out, but Jesus says, I don't shut you out, I embrace you. And so while it means an open door into the new heaven and new earth, it is also the way by which others are to be brought in. It's through the open door that others would come to salvation. Now, a little background about Philadelphia. Philadelphia was founded as a missionary city but a missionary city for the Hellenistic way of life. In other words, everything Greek. It was founded for the purpose of spreading the Greek language, the Greek worldview, and the Greek way of life to the whole world. It was a strategically located city with a highway that intersected uh, Europe and Asia. We're going to throw a map up on the screen, and I think we'll find it interesting for a number of reasons. First, note at the bottom left, we see Patmos is circled. 
That was the prison island that John wrote, had the vision of Jesus and wrote the book of Revelation on the island Patmos. Now, how did the churches get it? Well, they got it by messenger. And so maybe this is illuminating to you. Why are the churches in the order that they are in Revelation 2 and 3? Well, because of the messenger's journey. It unfolds this way. From Patmos, the messenger would start in Ephesus and work their way to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then finally Laodicea. And so what we see, though, and you can't really tell it from the map, but, but what's going on with Philadelphia it is, it is very strategic. It's a very strategic city. It was strategic. It was a missionary city for the Greek way of life. And the reason for that is because it's connected to Europe, right? Just around the bend, we have Greece, we have Europe, but then it opens up to all of Asia and Philadelphia as the crossroads of these highways. Such a strategic city. So while it was founded as a missionary city for everything Greek, Jesus is saying that it will have a new mission and it will be a missionary city for gospel proclamation. Jesus is saying, he's telling this little, weak, insignificant church, you will be a missionary city for bringing the gospel to the world. In this regard, the door that is open is a door of opportunity for success in evangelism and missions. Now, we see the, the language of an open door used this way a number of times in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 16, the Apostle Paul says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. 2 Corinthians 2, he says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. In Colossians 4, he says, at the, time, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Now, it's interesting. Paul doesn't equate opportunity with ease, does he? He's saying a door has been opened, what? For effective evangelism and missions for people to come to Jesus. But then he goes on to say, and there are many adversaries or because of the message for which I'm in prison. He's not saying it's going to be easy because a door is open, but he's saying a door is open for effective outreach, people to come to Jesus. This is referred to in the scriptures as an open door. So do you see what Jesus is saying to this church? He's doing two things. He's nullifying the opposition against them. Yes, you've been shut out, but I entreat you. I invite you. I open a door wide for you to come in so you are safe and secure. So, so he's nullifying the opposition that's against them in this letter, which would have been so encouraging to them, and also magnifying the opportunity that lies before them. The door has been opened by him and no one can shut it. Jesus wants them to take heart and use this little strength they have, but really truly the strength they have in him in service of the mission he sets before them. Every church essentially has, has three choices. We can huddle, even worse, we can retreat, or we can go through the open door. I think, I think that really ultimately churches have those options. What kind of church will we be? We've seen other churches huddle or retreat even in this sermon series as we looked at a number of churches in Revelation. But we don't even need to look into the scriptures alone. We can look at our own experience in church. Have you ever been a part of a church, observed a church that is either huddling or retreating? See, we should actually never see 
huddling or retreating as options for the church. We cease to have the right to exist if we are not about the Great Commission, growing as disciples and making disciples of Jesus. Max Licato wrote in his book, In the Eye of the Storm, a story about a time when his dad took him and a friend on a fishing trip only to have it rain and snow, and they had to spend a week cooped up in a camper truck. That sounds like my worst nightmare. And he writes this, I learned a hard lesson that week, not about fishing, but about people. When those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. When energy intended to be used outside is used inside, the result is explosive. Instead of casting nets, we cast stones. Instead of extending helping hands, we point accusing fingers. Instead of being fishers of the lost, we become critics of the saved. Rather than helping the hurting, we hurt the helpers. The result? Church scrooges. Bah humbug spirituality. Beady eyes searching for warts on others while ignoring the warts on the nose below. Crooked fingers that bypass strengths and point out weaknesses. Split churches poor testimonies, broken hearts, legalistic wars, and sadly, poor go unfed, confused go uncounseled, and lost go unpreached. When those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. When we spend all of the energies that Jesus puts in us in order to live gospel lives, gospel witness, pouring our lives out for the sake of the kingdom, but we aren't doing it. We come in here with a bunch of pent-up energy. We turn on one another. We don't care so much about the progress of the gospel. We, we, we care more about the programming in the church. We don't care so much about the person who's broken, but we actually use those energies to break each other down to hurt one another. I mean, this is such an important word for the church today. If we are doing nothing beyond this place, we are in danger of ruining one another. See, we must recognize that our energies need to be spent on being a gospel community. Yes, energy spent here on one another, building one another up, strengthening one another, investing in loving each other, supporting each other, yes, so that we are strengthened to be, hold up under the pressure as we go about striving to be an effective witness of the gospel. See, if we are satisfied with being our own island in the culture rather than permeating the culture, we will be treading on dangerous ground. The ground that actually ceases to give us the right to be a church. I mean, this is just like the churches we already saw in this series that were dealing with heresy and nominal faith. What an important word to us this morning. Where do you spend your energies in the mission of God? Now, this wouldn't be a sermon on this text if we didn't hunker down on verse 10 for a little while because it's pretty loaded um, and uh, there are differing interpretations of it. So let's put our thinking caps on and do a little digging here. What is verse 10 telling us? It says this, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. If you hold a view of the rapture, 
Um, man, this is, this is a very important verse to you. This is a key text right here for the, the, the idea of the rapture. Now, when I say that, I'm talking about that a tribulation or hour of trial is coming that will be so exceptional that Jesus will exempt the church, remove the church from it, from even having to go through it. A tribulation is coming, but before that tribulation comes on the earth, Jesus will remove his church, rapture them, right? I can hear Larry Norman now. That's old, if anybody knows. There's a song you should check out by him about the rapture. It's pretty awesome. Here's, here's my, uh, my pushback on the idea that verse 10 is talking about a rapture in this context, that that's what's going on and that's what's being said. My primary question is this, that then if, if that's the case, if that's what's being talked about, rapture in this text, then this promise wouldn't have been an actual promise to this church. I mean, this is a letter written to Philadelphia. Yes, to seven churches, meaning all churches for all time. We all glean from these letters. But it was a church at every point where the descriptions of Jesus, the promises of Jesus were absolutely on point for that particular church. But if Jesus is talking about the rapture here, then this isn't actually a promise for the church in Philadelphia because there has not been any rapture. So that's my primary issue with it. Here's my other In John chapter 17, because these are the words of Jesus in Revelation 3, in John chapter 17, Jesus uses the same phrase, and I think he's clearer about what he means by it. And so I think we're helped in trying to unpack what we think it means here. In John 17, Jesus says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. He's praying to God the Father. He's praying to him, and he's praying for the church. He's about to go to the cross, and then he'll ascend and be at the right hand of the Father. And so he prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, listen to this, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. It's a reference to Judas and God's sovereign plan. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This word keep means to watch over, to take care of, or to guard. And and so, yes, it could mean keep you from undergoing the trial. It could. Removal from it, therefore not experiencing it. It can mean that. It could mean that here. Or it could mean keep you right through the trial. Like I said, the same expression in John 17 and Revelation 3 is where Jesus, Jesus, Jesus never promises to protect his church from suffering, but he does promise to protect them from falling away. I have not lost one, Jesus says. See, I think we all go through hours of testing, and I think what Jesus is promising here is not removal, but I will keep you from stumbling. I will keep you true to me, even in the greatest trials of your life. And man, to me, that is incredibly rich and helpful to hear Jesus say, you've kept my word, I I will keep you. I'm holding on to you. I will not let you go. No matter what comes, I've got you. See, I don't see this verse as an, an exemption from tribulation. I see it as strength from Jesus in the midst of tribulation. I mean, Romans 8, nothing, 
Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can come at us that can separate us from the love of Christ. See, the beauty of Christianity, just to take this a little deeper, the beauty of Christianity when I talk about suffering is this. Our God, God the Son, became human. He took on flesh, and he knew what it was like to experience tribulation. Let's refer, because we're talking about open doors and closed doors, let's talk about that kind of tribulation like it's a closed door, like it's hard, right? Pressed. Jesus knew what it was like to experience tribulation, to experience a closed door. There he is in the garden of Gethsemane, and he's pleading with the Father, take this cup from me. I don't want this, but not my will. Yours be done. And he goes and he bears the cross. He bears our sin. See, the beauty of Christianity is we can trust him with our closed doors. We can trust him no matter what tribulation comes our way. We can be thankful that he holds the keys. We can say, if he could face that closed door for me, if he could face that tribulation for me, I can face this one with him. Jesus is saying to the Philadelphians, you are very weak, but the way you deal with closed doors, every pressing, every tribulation, every hardship that's coming is going to lead to open doors that you can't imagine. I will do great things through you. As you are faithful to me, I'm going to open doors for gospel hope, gospel evangelism, gospel opportunity. Or... If I'm wrong about this interpretation, I'll be raptured someday and it'll all be fine anyway. So whatever. If I'm wrong, I'm just going to get raptured. So it's all good. Win-win. Okay. There's my best attempt at verse 10, but we need to keep moving. That one was a bonus just for fun. That was just for fun. All right. Third. uh, Third? Yes. Those who overcome will be pillars in the presence of Jesus. Let's pick it up in verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. There are two things that you need to know about first century Philadelphia that are going to make these promises about a pillar and his name written just, just way more significant. Because you're like, I don't know, like a pillar? I don't know if that's great. I don't know if that's an awesome promise, but believe me, it is. Here's what you need to know. First, there were so many temples in Philadelphia that they were known, they were called Little Athens by many of their neighboring cities. Just so many temples, therefore so many pillars, Right? And they had a custom that when someone had served the state well as an official or as a priest, the city would inscribe their name on a pillar in their honor. Okay? Second, here's what you need to know. Philadelphia had fertile land, which was great for growing crops. But it had fertile land because it was located on the edge of an active volcano. And so this made the city susceptible to tremors and earthquakes. And when that would happen... The Philadelphians would flee the city. They'd leave the city until the tremors, the earthquakes ceased, okay? So they would leave and they were used to going and coming. They were used to fleeing and returning. And so this is what makes these promises so significant. I want to show you an image. Uh, This is of Philadelphia. And we see, man, those are some pillars, eh? Those are some serious pillars. And they stand to this day. 
But, but beyond pillars like those, when you think of kind of ancient Greek ruins, what do you envision? Like pretty much nothing is left except for some pillars, right? And Jesus is saying to be a pillar of Christ, to be a pillar of Jesus, you are secure. You will remain. You will stay. You will not have to flee. To be a pillar of Christ and to never leave are pictures of absolute and complete security that nothing will separate them from their Savior. And then he says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. I'd like us to work here a little bit on a theology of tattoos, okay? I will write on him. No, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm just joking. Later on in Revelation, by the way, Jesus has inscribed on his thigh some names and stuff. Anyways, so all the parents are very angry that I'm bringing this up, but it's interesting. Food for thought, life group study. There you go. All right. That should be fun. Sorry, life group leaders. Okay, let's move on. What's he saying when he's saying, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Here's what Jesus is saying. You will be sealed as belonging to God, belonging to God's city and belonging to God's son. His tender promise to those who are painfully aware of weakness and insecurity is that they will belong to him and they will be secure in him. What a promise. This letter, we've been glimpsing in at Revelation, a way for us to, to view what it's like and to see how rich it is. Many people are scared of the book of Revelation because it's this apocalyptic literature and there's kind of some scary uh, pictures in it and all that. And so it kind of, if you don't know what it means, it can kind of freak you out. But it's not meant to be scary. The letter of Revelation was written as encouragement. It was actually intended to strengthen the church even in the midst of persecution. So we've been looking in at Revelation 2 and 3 because we want you to see how rich this letter is when we can understand it rightly. And that's exactly what happened. From the get-go, this letter encouraged the churches, encouraged churches experiencing difficult things. By the time of the emperor Trajan, who was the emperor of the Roman Empire from 98 AD to 117, by that time it was illegal to be a Christian. If anyone was accused of being a Christian, they were brought before the proconsul, a representative of the emperor, and asked to renounce their faith and worship the emperor and their gods. If they did, they would be spared, and if not, they would be tortured and executed. This is in the early tradition, early history of the church, many, many martyrs. But So the book of Revelation was written into this context to prepare Christians for that situation, and it's done exactly that ever since. The things that are in this book did actually prepare them to face it. And if you go to any place in the world where the church is being pressed, do you know what consistently their favorite books of the Bible are? Daniel and Revelation. See, I, I want to read just an example of how this helped the early church. It's a historical document. It's a dialogue between six Christian men in Carthage and the proconsul named Saturnius. Saturnius says to these six Christian men, swear now by the Lord, our emperor. One of the men responded, we have committed no wrong. We have committed no theft. When we buy something, we pay the tax on it. And we do all this because we know our Lord, who no one sees with these eyes, who is the king of kings and is the emperor of all nations. Saturnius 
It's actually being quite gracious to them. He says, have a delay of 30 days and rethink this. But the men respond, no, we won't. We are Christians. Saturnius responded, since you have obstinately persisted, it has been determined that you will be put to the sword. And they all answered, thanks be to God. I don't know if you caught it in there, but they quoted Revelation 17 and 19. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one enthroned above all thrones. And there they stand, death is imminent. And they say, we will not bow. We will not worship anyone but the true king, anyone but the true emperor. He says, okay, you will be put to death. Praise God. The book of Revelation the descriptions of Jesus and the promises of Jesus undergirded their faith so strongly that they could do that. Central, in some ways, I believe we are a church of little power. I mean, looking back at our history, Chilliwack's not an intersection of Europe and Asia. <laughs> in many ways, we're, we're, we're less than Philadelphia. We, we, we have but little power. I think we can agree. But I also believe that a door has been opened wide for us. Do you see that? Have you noticed that in the last few years? I just really believe that, that, that Jesus is opening a door wide, a door of opportunity wide. As you stay faithful to me, Jesus is saying, I will open that door more widely than you could ever imagine. You have not denied my name. In fact, you've proclaimed my name. And I'm responding by opening a door wide to you. As I, as I look at our story and I observe what's going on in and through our church, I just really truly believe Jesus has opened a door wide for effective evangelism and missions. I hope you see that. And I hope you'll press into that. And where you feel weak, I just encourage you, rely on his strength. Let's remain fixated on the gospel, rooted in the Bible, and absolutely committed to the mission. Hey, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so, so much for this little powerless church in Philadelphia that you decided to rest your power upon and use mightily. Jesus, I thank you for the, the truths of the scriptures that when we are weak, then you are strong. You use the weak things to shame the strong. Jesus, we look to you. We, we make no claims about our own power, Lord. We look to you and your strength. I pray that we would be a church collectively that does that, but Lord, that, that has to dwindle down to a group of believers, followers of you who lean not on our own understanding, but yours, who don't rely day to day on our own strength, but yours. Lord, I pray that you would do that in us. And God, I pray that the rich promises in this text to this church would be true of us, Lord. That you would find us faithful and commend what you see here. And Lord, I also pray that you would open a door wide for effective mission. Oh, Lord, would you use us? I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.